what if then the bunny is the thing that he's like has a value for and you just the kind of wondering around uh the, the 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 meaning and the attachment that carl has for this kind of childhood stuffed animal Everybody to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Thank you all for tuning back in. We are excited to get to keep talking about some of theater's best scripts today with all of you out there in podcast land. That's right. We are roaring into this new season of the show and talking about some really varied scripts. I mean, these right. first three <laughs> episodes are nothing alike in turn. I mean, the episodes are alike, perhaps <laughs> the conversations, but the scripts we're talking about are not. I mean, think Think about the play that we talked about last week, Jackson Cat, on a hot tin roof. It is long. It is uh, takes place in one location. It, it and this play on like one in, night. One yeah. night. This play that we're talking about today is short. It takes place across all of Europe. It takes place either <laughs> over several weeks or over several seconds, depending on yeah. what point you believe you're at in the script. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. It completely like tells it or tells a story in a completely new and different way. It uses storytelling um and and uh given circumstances differently. So so yeah, I'm excited to get to jump into the conversation around The Baltimore Waltz by Paula Vogel. Paula Vogel is just amazing. Every time I come back to a Paula Vogel script I've already read or I read a new Paula Vogel script, I mean, new to me. It, it it's just a reminder of the just level of genius, yeah, <laughs> that these works represent. I mean, I haven't read Baltimore Waltz since probably coming out of high school, and coming back to it, I'm a totally different person, and you can just see in it the marks of absolutely the amazing career she had already had, sort of, but was certainly about to have as one of, I mean, I think you got to put her in, I I honestly believe this, probably the top three playwrights across the world of all time. And I really believe that. Yeah, definitely. The way she ties together narrative and the way she structures scenes to to like bring bring out slowly and suss out what's actually happening is, is just masterful. Yeah, absolutely. And this play is quirky, it's odd, it's off the wall, it's imaginative, it's non-realistic, like many of Paula Vogel's works, and is a great representation of many of Paula Vogel's works because it is simultaneously heartbreaking and specific and really mm-hmm. grounded in the real. Yeah, yeah, grounded in a very real experience. I'm ex- I'm excited to get to jump into the talk of the play. Um, however, before we uh, get going, I do want to take just a second and say thank you to all of our patrons over on patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. You help us uh, be sure that this podcast can keep going. We love getting to have these conversations about theater's best scripts, and uh, and it's not free to do so. So the patrons over on patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast 
help out a lot with that, with uh, podcast hosting fees, script costs, time associated with the project. So if you are looking for a way to get involved in the NoScript community to help out the show, if you like what we're doing, if you're getting, you know, $1 a month's worth out of out of listening to the podcast, uh, and you're looking for a way to kind of uh, join the community in a substantive way, you can head over to patreon.com slash podcast. You'll see a number of different tiers of patronship over there. Um, uh, the lowest one being just that $1 amount. So, um, you're looking for a way to help us out? Head on over to patreon.com slash podcast. Thank you to everyone who has already done so. We will continue to see you over there. Yeah, incredibly huge thanks to all of you who are supporters. You're amazing, but get to do the show because of you. And now, back to the script. Here we go. All right. Paula Vogel, uh, I've already sung her praises this episode, but as another <laughs> way to sing her praises, this is our third time coming to her across the you know six and a half seasons that we've got so far. We're in season seven of the show. We talked about her play, How I Learned to Drive, one of my favorite plays of all time, and her, more, her most recent play, Indecent, are the two that we've talked about so far. You maybe remember those conversations. You may even want to revisit them if you like those plays after listening to this conversation on the Baltimore Waltz. As a way to just reflect briefly on the legacy, the amazing reality of who Paula Vogel is, listen to this short list of students that Paula Vogel has taught, and think about that these are people who are defining the genre now. People like Sarah Rule, Nilo Cruz, Chiari Alegria Hudes, right? She wrote the, the book for In the Heights, and now the screenplay for the incredible movie In the Heights, and Lynn Nottage. These are students of Paula Vogel who are defining the genre now. And Paula Vogel defined the genre then. I mean, she has an incredible legacy. She's uh, an American Theater Hall of Famer. The Kennedy Center has named a playwriting award after her. Uh, I mean, incredible. This play, The Baltimore Waltz, is an earlier piece by Paula Vogel. She had already had a little bit of a successful career, not in terms of fame, but in terms of getting productions done. One of her first plays, she was a student, won a big award at the Kennedy Center. But this play uh, really catapulted Paula Vogel into kind of the national spotlight as one of America's premier playwrights. It won the 1992 Obie Award for Best New American Play. It was workshopped in Alaska, which is cool at the Perseverance Theater, uh, played 1992 in Houston at the Alley Theater, then the Circle Rep, that production had transferred to New York at the Circle Rep. That production was directed by the legendary theater director Ann Bogart. I mean, to have anything of yours directed by Ann Bogart is an honor. And think about what Ann Bogart did with this script. I'm sure it was incredible. Uh, The play was at the Yale Rep in 2003, 2004 at the Signature Theater Company, and many regional theaters, professional houses, around uh, educational theaters around the country, around the world. Most recently that I could see at any significant size of theater was 2019 production at the Keegan Theater in D.C. I mean, incredible. And, And as Jackson gets to kind of what the story is about, it's worth noting that there's kind of an overlap here between content and synopsis because this is a play influenced by real-world events. In the uh, foreword or the introduction to my anthology of Paula Vogel plays, David Sabran writes a uh, lovely, touching sort of memoir to who Paula Vogel was as an artist, and he makes a comment that a lot of Paula Vogel's plays are responses to other pieces of theater. She reads the plays of William Shakespeare and writes Desdemona. She reads Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and she 
writes And Baby Makes Seven. She reads or sees The Ducks Variation. She writes The Oldest Profession. She reads or sees plays by people like Sam Shepard, and she writes Hot and Throbbing as a response. These are pieces of theater that respond to other pieces of theater. But in this particular case, this is a piece of theater that responds to something that happened in her life. And it was clearly a a painful, impactful um, reality for her. And that was the loss of her brother, Carl, to the AIDS virus. Yes, yeah. So that's the kind of important um, starting context for the writing of the play, and also the action of the play. Um, the it's it's uh, it's slowly brought out. It's kind of the mystery of the play, what we're actually talking about. But keep keeping it, keeping that context in mind. It 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 comes to bear in the play itself. Um, this play is in some ways her um, writing through the events and and the grief of losing her brother to AIDS. Um, the, the main characters in, to, 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 we're switching into synopsis real quick here. Uh, the main characters in the play are Anna and Carl, and then a third character called the third man who ends up playing 10 or so different characters throughout the play. Um, the events of the play are Anna and uh, uh, we meet Anna at the top of the play and we meet Carl at the top of the play. Carl is a librarian um, who gets put on leave pretty quickly for he's a he's a children's librarian um, and is either put on leave or goes on vacation or gets fired. Um, it's a little complicated <laughs> or what exactly what you're going to believe from that. Um, but he goes and uh, helps his sister, Anna, who is just getting the news that she has contracted uh, uh, a dangerous disease, a disease that will kill her. Um, Right away, you get into a little bit of the fanciful because the the disease is called the acquired toilet disease. Um, And uh, they don't really know exactly what's going on with it. Some of uh, some of it is a little absurd the way that they're talking about it. And yet some of it is kind of reflective of the way that kind of early stage AIDS fear was being talked about. It's worth noting that the uh, the acronym for acquired toilet disease would be ATD, right? And AIDS is AID. Yeah, yeah, and they they base it all in this this kind of narrative that they've pieced together that school teachers around the country are getting it from their middle school children who are using the toilets and they're contracting it that way. Um, the the pair uh, Anna and Carl were kind of planning to go on a Europe Europe trip. Um, Anna has always been afraid of going to Europe because she doesn't understand the language. She'd only go with Carl because Carl knows like six languages. He's a librarian. He's studied um, a, a lot. And, um, and so, so, uh, she asks the, the physician, uh, uh, notably right, right before they're, they're about to leave. She's like, is there any way that I could pass this on to anyone? Cause I want to have a lot of sex if I'm going to die. Um, so, uh, the doctor says no. And she's like, okay, so we're going to go on this romp through Europe. And Carl kind of starts, uh, the, the job of like trying to find her a cure. Carl, uh, approaches this in two ways. One by talking to the doctor, um, and, uh, getting the name of Dr. Todrishkeln in Vienna is how I'm going to say that name. Um, and this is a doctor who's like a, a urology doctor who is focused on, on, uh, urine therapy, um, of, of some sort and, uh, has experimental treatments that he, that he wants to try to, uh, use. And he convinces Anna to go on this European trip with him. They'll stop at all the places that they want to stop and then end at this doctor's to try this new therapy. Carl also pursues the route of black market drugs in some way. He has a contact over there and he's, he talks to his, his friend over there and, um, 
says, uh, I need you to hook me up with some drugs that might help uh, my sister. And his friend says, that's fine. Uh, do you still have the rabbit? And this is the first time that the rabbit kind of appears, which is a, a really unique prop in the play that Carl begins to carry with him throughout the different scenes. Um, they they get over to Europe and they begin having all these adventures over in Europe. Uh, they see the uh, they stop in Paris and see the Eiffel Tower. Anna um, begins uh, uh, kind of going through the, the 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 grief of a life lived as a middle school teacher doing all the right things, um, but uh, eventually contracting this illness, having uh, not experienced all that life has to offer, all of the uh, great food that life has to offer. There's this this scene in Paris where she's eating this amazing food and is lamenting all the Velveeta that she's eaten. Um, the, uh, the, that scene ends in her uh, getting together with the waiter and them having sex that night. Um, and, and kind of an inter interesting, intimate relationship with Carl, who kind of comes into the room and lays down in the bed at the same time. And, and, uh, uh, and so, so that continues. They go up to Holland and a similar pattern happens. Um, Carl is uh, kind of uh, going to museums while Anna is sleeping with people. <laughs> Um, she sleeps with the 50 or the little Dutch boy at age 50 is the name of the character, um, who is, who is, uh, kind of a, a surrealist character up there. Um, she, uh, they, they, uh, get on, get, get to Germany. Eventually Carl is kind of pushing her through trying to get to, uh, this, this, this therapist, uh, in, uh, Vienna and, um, they get they get to Germany and finally the the kind of rush of of the sleeping around eventually ends. She uh, sleeps with uh, like a young revolutionary or something like that, and who he is ultimately uh, disappointing in in on multiple levels. And uh, finally, kind of uh, uh, she she winds up kind of broken after that scene. The the rush of it is 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 getting has gotten away from her. About this point in the play, some things start to happen that begin to make us question what the narrative of the play is. There are some slides shown of their adventures um, that don't necessarily match up with, with European adventures. They're talking about um, this great food in Germany, but they show like a hot dog stand outside of the John Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. Um, they they uh, talk about... Uh, different sites in Europe, which are uh, juxtaposed with views from the hotel looking looking over Baltimore. So you begin to kind of piece together that something else is happening. Some some other narrative is happening in here that that is maybe not just the narrative of them traveling through Europe. Um, you you begin to get that more and more. Uh, the the towards the end of the play, they finally get to Vienna. Uh, they, they, they look up the doctor. Carl ends up going to meet his friend who en who's a character called Harry Lime, which is a nod to uh, a movie called The Third Man, which is... Uh... More than a nod. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is a direct character relationship to the character in The Third Man, uh, played by Orson Welles, which is a movie about a romp through post-war, post-World War II Europe. And some and so, shady medicine dealings in Vienna, yeah, and Harry yeah. Lime is dead, but not dead. I mean, <laughs> it's some fairly direct taking from the movie, but with credit, right? Because this third right. man is part of the script. Yeah, definitely. So so Carl goes off to meet with him, who's kind of his friend from college, but he he has he he lets him know that the medicine that he is making is just is just medicine that he's making in his kitchen. It's not true black market medicine. It probably won't help Anna get any better. 
and they end up fighting over the the the, the rabbit that has been kind of packed with them over this time and uh, fight fighting on a Ferris wheel uh, over over this rabbit and we kind of leave them there. Anna has her first session with this um, pee doctor um, and uh, and it goes a very strangely, very surreally. Uh, he he keeps uh, trying to drink this vial of urine throughout the scene and 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 by the end of it, she starts to kind of wake up. Um, we, we have some of the magic being broken. She, she notices that the doctor is similar to the doctor from the first scene of the play, um, and kind of takes off his wig and catches him in it. And we're kind of quickly ushered into the reality of the situation, which is that she's in John Hopkins hospital in Baltimore and, uh, she's visiting her brother, um, who, uh, she has left alone in kind of this daydreaming moment, perhaps. It's a little bit fuzzy exactly why she's left him alone. The doctor asked her why she's left him alone. She runs back into the room, and Carl has uh, passed away uh, as a result of uh, complications with AIDS, uh, namely pneumonia, dying dying of, of pneumonia. And um, she, she tries to revive him, tries to dance with him, but he is in fact dead. The, the scene ends, or, or the, the play ends with the doctor kind of uh, helping her through the the grief of that, noting it, and and at, at the last moment, kind of like uh, asking her out to coffee, which she refuses uh, gracefully, and that's that's um, that's that's the last action of the play. Yeah, it, it, that's a good summary as it it leads us through the way that the play is this romp through Europe with question marks things yeah. that are odd things that don't make sense and don't add up but in just that final probably five minutes of the play mm-hmm. it all comes rushing into clarity as the audience discovers what has really been going on who's actually sick who's actually dying what this trip through europe really was and it's worth noting that the beginning of the play starts there too as anna begins the play reading from a uh, language book the the pocket Ber- the berlitz pocket guide to europe and she begins the play reciting these phrases um, from that she should know in other languages from this book. And then after those those uh, just recitations of these a couple of things she should know, like where's the toilet and stuff like that, she then, what I would consider, starts the monologue with, I've never been abroad. It's not that I don't want to, but the language terrifies me. And yeah. that kind of opening line comes to define, and the opening image of her with this pocket guide, comes to kind of define the signposts of the play in one of just my all-time favorite ways to signpost a play is the way Paul Vogel does it in this script. Yeah, yeah, it's all these uh, uh, kind of school lessons in in language. Um, it's not each scene, but many scenes begin with lesson five, Um you know, personal pronouns or something like that. Um, and, and kind of bookends or, or maybe not bookends, but kicks off a new direction in the play by, um, addressing it with, with, um, with, uh, phrases from different languages. Mostly I think French and German are used. And, and these, all the different ways to learn about these languages in these small lessons, then, signpost sort of what's going to happen in the scene as the play journeys Anna 
learning the language, quote unquote. And there's a metaphor there about learning the medical language, learning the language of grief, but also some really beautiful ways that that's used in the script. And and beautiful might not even be strong enough. Some really genius integrations. Like, here's one. This is kind of from late in the play. There's this whole scene where Carl and Anna are fighting over how often Anna is going out to sleep with just random men around Europe. And the the argument is a, a montage argument. It shows us many different arguments, one right after another, from presumably different days, different nights, as a way to show how much this is happening. But this is all marked by this third character, the third man, giving us these lessons on, he starts the scene, conjugations of the verb verlassen, to leave, to abandon, to forsake. Then he'll say the present tense. Carl, are you leaving me alone? Anna, yes, just for a little while. I need to take a walk. Da 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 da. It goes on. Then the third man says the future tense of the verb verlassen. Carl, will you be leaving me alone again tonight? Yeah. I'm ready for bed. Goes on and on and on. Later, the third man, the past tense of the verb verlassen. Again, again, you went out last night and the night before. So you can see how she interweaves these sort of simple language lessons into the structure of the scenes and the broader play. Yeah, which all speaks to Anna's, like, growing into a new expression of language. Um, and, and it's not just the spoken language, but in fact a new way of being, right? Like, this whole, this, this whole experimentation with a new way that she's trying to exist in the world as a result of the kind of timeline that she thinks she has with her illness... Um, you, you, you have her learning a new mode of being in addition to overcoming her, just, just the fear of the language itself that she expresses early on. And of course, these language lessons sort of, while they're not clues enough that you would sort of give away what's really happening, they are things that fit into this broader world of what's really going on in the play, right? Because this... This whole romp through Europe is an imagination, a false, uh, like a, like a vision, basically. Yeah. <laughs> that she has mm-hmm. just in a few seconds before she goes in to discover that Carl has died. And what's she holding in those few seconds? This travel book with language lessons in it for traveling around Europe. And so these things that she has read or is reading are swirling and creating this imaginative experience of the romp through Europe. Yeah, I watched an interview with Paula Vogel in preparation for this, and in it she talks about um, how sometimes in writing a play, rather than writing about the thing that you're writing about, you write away from the thing that you're writing about. And and this is just like an a, a, a awesome example of that. Um, because, like, you're exactly right, the kind of cue to her daydream is this travel booklet. And the question of what if uh, if Carl and Anna had gotten to go on a Europe trip? Um, together because they were kind of planning to uh, prior to prior to Carl's illness and it just didn't line up right didn't get there in time so she kind of has this daydream of both what if they did and also what if the roles were, were reversed um, what if what if uh, it was in fact Carl who needed to be the one trying to advocate and take care of Anna so you so yeah it's it's this 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 fascinating kind of daydream exercise in which you write in a different direction like Vogel says to eventually talk about the direction that you're you're actually intending to talk about and she's brilliantly crafted the world of the play 
to fit within both the logic of the vision of this trip and the logic of what's going on at the time. I mean, things that are part of the design that she's asked for are sort of raise your eyebrow, why would you do that, until you understand what the play is. She calls for Anna, the protagonist character, to be in basically a slip and a coat on top of that. She calls for Carl to be in his pajamas and a suit jacket on top of that through the whole play. And then you that's where you sort of get this, what's going on in the real world, than what's going on in this vision fantasy of this trip through Europe. The third man is the only other actor in the play, although I've seen some pictures where they you may have like a nurse or something. I'm not sure exactly why you do that, to be totally yeah. honest. It mm-hmm. seems like a three-actor play. Anyway, the third man plays all the other characters, and who's the third man? It's just this doctor. And so the fantasy is this, uh, you know, envisioning this fantasy across Europe. And the only face she can imagine is this doctor that's continually in their lives as Carl is dying. Right, right. And so you get like the little the little pieces of reality that get brought into her reality. The the the, the repeating. Uh, I think I think the thing that that you just said that made me that reminded me that there's a little bit more of the surreal in this than then maybe leaps off the page because in reading it, you kind of forget that they're in pajamas <laughs> uh, for a good chunk of the play. Um, that the, the, There's a call at the beginning of the script for the lighting to be extremely vibrant in contrast to a pretty sparse stage, um, uh, a pretty sparse, uh, actually true setting, which is the hospital setting. It's not until the final scene of the play where you finally get the stage direction to flip to a sterile uh, lighting feel like reflect reflect the feel of the hospital um so so you have so you have that active as well so you you have all these these little extra hints that there's more at work here this is not just this is not just a romp through Europe though the action would seem to suggest so you also have the kind of oddity of this like kind of stalking relationship of the third man um he stalks them throughout Europe um shows up in trench coat and beret trench coat and a hat um and in in Paris and in Holland so you have this like sense of uh verboding or or something that is that is overhanging all of the action still and then you have the um the the inclusion and use of the third man movie to drive so much of that basically last third of the play to the point of stealing a character and very uh basically just um touch adapting some right. of the plot to their new situation and that totally makes sense in the world of the fantasy right because what she was probably just seen the movie you know right and she doesn't know anything about europe she's never traveled there so if she's going to imagine a fantasy it's going to be largely based on stereotypes films and you see that through the course of the play the little dutch boy at age 50 that she meets and um ends up sleeping with this is a, a fabled dutch myth about a boy who held up a dam or a dike by sticking his finger in a hole and the the character tells this story well Anna is an elementary school teacher, a first grade teacher. And so this is a Dutch myth that appears in a famous children's book. So Mm -hmm. she's imagining a romp through Holland, doesn't know anything about Holland, really. Of course, this myth appears in the fantasy exploration and adventure. 
Right, right. Yeah. And down to like the music that's called for too. like it's the the music called for is supposed to be this like whatever you're thinking is stereotypical of the nation that they're visiting. Play that music as the as the scene starts. So so it really does evoke this like a, a what if sort of sentimentality of the trip um, that this that this daydream is is uh, is kind of a projection of what sh- what Anna is imagining uh, the trip could have been like without any real knowledge of the places or the people. Um, and, and that slowly trick tips us off too, that there's more happening here than is necessarily uh, going to happen. Like the, the, the first hookup she has is with the waiter who brings out like a dessert carriage for her. And it just kind of smoothly goes into the French, you know, love scene after that. And that that sex that appears through so much of the play is, in terms of our conversation, probably a nice smooth transition point for us to talk about the way that the play deals with AIDS, too. Because Anna, in the fantasy trip, is the one dying of a disease, and so she decides she's going to have an outrageous amount of sex and sort of this final exuberant greed of, you know, the magic of the body trying to whatever. They talk about that a couple of times. But, but as you layer on what goes on in this play to the experience of the AIDS virus, Anna is imagining this trip where she would potentially get to do something that Carl would not get to do as a person dying of the AIDS virus. There's a, you know, Jackson Nutt mentioned this in his synopsis. There's a moment where she asks the doctor, does this acquired toilet disease that I have, can it be passed on with sex? And the doctor says, no. And that's, of course, the not true of the AIDS virus. And so part of the fantasy is not just this trip we didn't get to take, but these, uh, you know, experiences that Carl would never get to have. Yeah, yeah, the kind of the the sort of love or passion that he would wish to express uh through 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 the final days of his life wouldn't wouldn't be the same the kind of the it's that is an interesting like taking away of that 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 fear and deprivation aspect to kind of yeah live out another kind of pseudo fantasy for Anna in the in the roles uh flipped um to to kind of have that freedom to even in the midst of knowing that there is a timeline to life and it's more clear and 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 present than than maybe Anna would have uh, been expecting to still be able to live it out in that way ultimately though there's there's still the kind of end to that which is uh you know after who knows with with the, the with the time jumping the way it is who knows how many uh uh encounters she has on this trip but eventually there is an end point there's a point where it's where it becomes that she just says i want to go home this is this is enough i want to go home yeah and and so many of the other ways that paula vogel has dealt with the aids virus are remarkable too. I mean, you think about the imaginary disease that she has crafted and it could have been anything, but she's created something where there is a, a, a shame response to the disease, right? You get it from a toilet and being, uh, you know, unhygienic in your use of the toilet. And right. the, the AIDS virus at the time, there was a huge, and even till today, before shame, there is a huge shame response to that the way that that disease is treated. And it 
you know, all throughout this round through Europe, she's told things like, well, don't, just don't tell people what you do and you won't be judged. Right. Just don't blah, 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 blah. And you can sort of see this metaphor that she constructs about the way society perceives people who have the AIDS virus, too, especially the shame of getting it, how you've gotten it, etc. And then the exhaustion of trying to figure out a way to treat it, um, especially at the time that she was writing the play when it was still very, uh, a lot of the, the treatments were experimental and, and it was hard to know um, whether you were pursuing something that would work or pursuing something that would take a lot of energy out of your life and you don't know how much life you have left. Um, so, so that all, you get that kind of uh, exasperation from Carl, especially um, towards the end when he gets to there to a friend, um, to someone who he kind of trusted um who ends up telling him well yeah sorry i mean i'll give you the drugs if you want to buy them but they're they're all just made up crack quack drugs that aren't going to help at all and and the doctor too is a is a total quack he drinks pee and yeah is sort of yeah. suggesting this urology treatment that involves all kinds of stuff to do with with urine and pee and and there's that that sort of shame gross out of the treatment for the disease as well right yeah yeah absolutely that scene like is is this this super surreal scene where it's it's it started with um, Anna talking about, I think when she was a kid, how she would like have these scenes with her left and right hand, um, and like have these conflicts with them and, and have arguments with them. And, uh, and, but, but then the doctor comes in and he's like, he has a similar feature and same thing with the, the kind of daydreaming thing we've been talking about. That story from her childhood informs the character of the, the kind of quack urine doctor who comes in and his left hand can't stop going to the, like flask of urine that is there but his right hand keeps trying to like stop him from it so you have this kind of uh almost theater game-esque division of the character where the left hand is trying to drink the urine the whole time and the right hand is stopping him and it's just this 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 super weird scene that just brings home the kind of frustration of having traveled that whole way to meet this like essentially crazy doctor yeah and and there's so much else in the play that has that kind of crazy, weird, sometimes odd and kind of uncomfortable, but definitely wacky experiences. I mean, of course, the the major one is just the treatment of the bunny yeah. through this whole play. It's this stage prop that's part of the story in this grand mysterious way it starts when they're packing their suitcases and carl sticks his stuffed bunny into anna's suitcase won't really tell her why then he wants her to carry it through airport security and won't really tell her why and then in france they're pursued by a guy in a trench coat who also has a bunny and he never explains and then she follows them around in amsterdam and discovers that these two guys meet and like kind of touch each other's bunny and then it's part and then of course the harry lime character from the third man movie wants the bunny and is only willing to trade the bogus medicine for the bunny and through the whole thing us along with anna are just like what in the world 
Yeah. <laughs> yep. And then we finally at least get a get a, a a grounding in the reality of the bunny, which is that she brought it to be of some sort of comfort to her brother in the hospital in the in the non daydream world. Um, she's she's brought it in, so it, it's another little piece that is kind of an an anchor point into her daydream of like, what if what if then the bunny is the thing that he's like has a value for, and you just the kind of wandering around. Uh, the 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 meaning and the attachment that Carl has for this kind of childhood stuffed animal, and it really comes home in that scene that you're describing with the doctor and Carl's actually dead and they're back in the real world. When the doctor brings out all the stuff, the bunny's one of the things, and she says she had she had brought this bunny from home to comfort him, like you said. And the doctor responds, "Sometimes little things become important when nothing else will help." Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So then you have the kind of wonder, the, the, the additional, um, wondering around, you know, you, you, you wonder a lot around the rabbit, but, but you also have the, <laughs> the, the, the clarity that it's one of those mystery, mystery things, the, the things that mean more than they should. Um, so you could, you could get into, you could get down a rabbit hole or a rabbit trail about what it means and where, where, why, why does, uh, uh, the, oh shoot, Henry Lyme character want the rabbit and all that. And that's not really the focus. Um, the focus is that it's a, it's a meaningful kind of almost talisman to Carl for some reason. And for some reason, it's something that meant a lot that Anna did for Carl. And maybe that's just enough. And that she, in the real world, may not really understand why an adult man would find comfort in his childhood stuffed animal, right? There's a mystery to her around that. Mm-hmm. And she knows that it's true, but she doesn't know why or how. And so as the fantasy romp around Europe is fully manifested, the bunny gains all this mystery mysterious importance why is it important what in the world for but the fact that it's important is never in dispute right yeah it's clear <laughs> like this trench-coated person is walking around with a similar rabbit and some for some reason the ominousness is tied to it there's a scene where he breaks into their uh their hotel room and like threatens her with the rabbit and 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 yeah so it's it's clear that it has value um and, and in some way we figured that out with the last scene that that you read with what the doctor says that there, sometimes it just means something more to someone than it than it really has any credence to do so well let's think just for a second jackson about what the significance of the trip through europe is once you finally reach the end of the play I mean, in in the story, in the experience, you reach the end of the play and you realize that this whole thing has been a fake vision that never really happened, that only happened in a few seconds before Carl dies, that all of the experiences that we've had as the audience and that they seemingly have had as brother and sister were fake or were these sort of mythic representations of experiences somewhat from their lives, but mostly just... Um, uh, Anna taking things from the hospital or from her immediate surroundings that she can use to sort of imagine a fantasy world, right? I mean, lots of plays like this exist where characters might romp through their memories 
um, in these important moments, in these sort of crucial seconds. I mean, there's that famous movie with Jim Carrey, right, where that's basically the whole plot is right. romp through memories while something else is going on, and you finally learn about this something else. But this isn't a romp through memories. This is a romp through a total fantasy. Mm-hmm. I think there's, uh, yeah, it's a, a romp through total fantasy, and I think there's something significant about the flip in the roles, too, that the the flip in who is the caretaker and who has the disease um, that I think is significant for the telling of this story, um, because it's it's not just a, you know, what if we had actually gotten that Europe trip in um, or 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 what if he had just what if Carl had just made it long enough, even if he still had this disease to uh, to still go on the Europe trip. And I was caretaking him through that. It's not that at all. I think there's there's the uh, the kind of you know, fantasy almost guilt that she's playing with of how would Carl have taken care of me better than I did or been more aware of of ways or tried harder or allowed me to do things or been more grace filled uh, if I needed to go out and sleep around or maybe he wouldn't. Maybe there would be this fight. This Maybe the fight reflects a fight that they actually had in real life about time spent together. So I think there's I think there's something really significant in the in the flip of roles too that makes it more than just like more than just like a multiverse sort of situation where you're like, oh, what if, you know, what if this other timeline of me happened? Um, she's she's playing with, with uh, I think, some of that uh, a familial wondering and, and possible guilt around how she was able to be there for Carl. I think I think you're right on. I love the way you put that. As opposed to Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, where Jim yeah. Carrey and the other character uh, are trying to figure out i'm just loosely remembering the movie y'all so bear with me but <laughs> as i remember there there there's a question of what is going to happen next that the romp through the memories of their relationship because of whatever device it is that they hook them up to right. uh, because of the romp through memories that that causes there is a decision able to be made about what's going to happen next in the relationship that doesn't really appear much in this play this is not so much a play about a decision of what's going to happen next but I, I think you nailed it when you say this is a play somewhat about not just survivor's guilt but caretaker's guilt right yeah how does anna deal with what would have happened if the roles would reverse were reversed would carl have done a better job taking care of me than i am doing taking care of him and it's certainly no coincidence that in that world carl drags her halfway around the globe for a mysterious treatment that may or may not work and right. it does not appear in the but in the real world of the play that Anna has done that necessarily for him. Now, of course, that's a that's a fantasy. It never really even could have happened. But the the fantasy of the, the, the fact that the reality could never have happened doesn't change the guilt that she experiences. Right, right. Because uh, the 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 end result is still that the treatment didn't work and the drugs are fake. Um, so, so, uh, or the treatment is, is too weird maybe, or, or there's, there's, there's no like proof that the treatment will work. So you have the, you have, I think there's some, some of what she's describing in, uh, Anna is describing in her relationship to Carl is Carl is this figure that she trusts to take care of her. She talks about his education, that she would only go to Europe if Carl can come along with her. Cause she's too afraid to go on her own, too afraid of the language. And even with that trust, 
even with that belief that that he could uh, take care of her, it still ends similarly. It still ends... Uh, I mean, we don't actually get to see the full end of their story because Carl maybe in the in the fantasy dies on the Ferris wheel where he's meeting uh, Henry Lyme. It's a little, a little confusing at the end. We're, 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 we're briskly brought out of the daydream by the, the real world. So we don't actually see the end of the daydream. And yet you get the sense that it's coming along to the same place that she's worked out something uh, from the experience and and that even if the roles had been reversed, there's very little, even with all the trying of Carl, um, that, that he could have done. And how that ends up changing Anna on the real world side, the play just doesn't offer a lot of time for us to experience that. And I actually find that to be one of the more surprising, I mean, in a play full of weird stuff, to me, one of the more surprising moments was how quickly the play ends after we come back to the real world. Because it's a short play. It's not like she was lacking for time. But there isn't a lot of chance for the audience to see any kind of impact that this fantasy Europe trip has made on the real-life loss of Carl on the character of Anna. Yeah, yeah. There's kind of an interesting time, uh, pr- not a problem, but like trying to wonder when the time of the play is, um, because because we we jump out of the daydream into the moment where Carl dies. So it's it it can't quite be a play that is reflecting upon the death of Carl, um, because it's so so immediate, so recent. Um, at least in the events of the play. However, you also have this kind of unique element, uh, at least if, I mean, if you're, if, you're, if you're analyzing this script as either a director or a dramaturg or an actor, you have this interesting other element of the slideshow of the pictures of her time at the hospital with Carl. And that speaks of some time having passed um, since, since the event, at least enough time to go and get some film developed. Um, because it would have been film cameras. Um, the, so, so you, so you have this kind of odd, um, an odd denouement because the denouement of the play is so immediate, so short. We, we, we have the daydream. We have the moment where Carl dies. She has this conversation with the doctor. And then I I forgot to mention in the synopsis, one of the beautiful images of the play is after the conversation, she dances off, um, in, in, in a waltz with Carl, who has switched into a European outfit, um, uh, like an Austrian general's or, or soldier's outfit. So, so yes. it's a very... That's the final image of the play. And the image just before it is the doctor asking her out and her turning him down. And yeah. these are the final two moments of the play. And it could be, for a lesser playwright, you could say, well, the doctor asked her out because we had to explain all of the sex fantasies in right, the, right, in the right. European trip somehow. But Paula Vogel is not a lesser playwright, right? So the, the inclusion of this moment in, I mean, in my script, it is a scant page and a half yeah. that we have in the quote-unquote real world. There's just not much there, maybe 20 lines total. So for two of those 20 lines to be the asking out and the rejecting, that's a lot of weight given to that moment, and it's the moment just before the end of the play. And so it occurs to me that is this turning down of the doctor some sort of manifestation 
of who Anna is and how she's changed too. I mean, the mm. sex trip across Europe, basically, right. that is this fantasy vision. I don't know. Is Anna someone who's inclined to have a lot of sort of meaningless casual relationships and through this experience with her brother and, and she's she's going to try to change that and develop? I, I don't know, right? That's probably a little shallow for Paula Vogel. But I'm just trying to find some decision made by Anna in the outside that reflects on what has occurred on the inside. And in terms of decisions, that's the only one that I can see in that right. page and a half is the decision to turn down the doctor. Right, yeah, which which d- didn't have to be the ending, right? Like the, 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 the daydream or the action of the play could have been to uh, kind of... Uh, free her from that life of turning down random doctors. But that's not, that's not the journey. That's not even the journey of the, of the fantasy itself. Um, the journey of the fantasy itself is the, the kind of the, the fun of it initially, the frustration of it being a part of her relationship with Carl and the eventual tiredness of, of the, the constant strain of it and just wanting to go home, have Carl take her home. And that's kind of what happens at the end, right? Like she, she says no to the doctor and care and, and Carl dances her off stage. And the dancing is uh, beautiful. Uh, you mentioned it, and then I took us off the direction to talk about the doctor, but we should uh, reflect on uh, the beautiful tearjerker that that is yeah. as a final image of the play. Mm-hmm. Especially because the scene before she tries to dance with him in his like corpse state. Um, there's kind of a, a a weird kind of mechanical moment, another surreal moment where Carl like stands up and like has some mo- movement that is jerky and weird, and they try to dance, um, but it doesn't work. Um, and he ends up collapsing back into the bed. The doctor comes in and pronounces him fully dead. So to have that kind of brokenness of the missed the missed uh, possibility of that for them right before that, and then to have it. Uh, return to the fantasy where he's in a European Austrian officer's uniform and they get to have that last dance is such a tearjerker moment. And what it, what the moment means for Anna and the story is (laughs) a little confusing, but not in any way that overshadows what the moment means for the character, even though it's a fantasy. And what is she going to, just continue to live her life in this fantasy that her brother is still alive or st- I don't know. I mean, I, yeah. That's maybe I mean, it's the worst case scenario. For this <laughs> character. Right. Right. Maybe, maybe it's less of a fantasy of, of, of movement or, or progress or action and more of a fantasy of feeling, uh, a feeling of, of finality, a feeling of, we got to we got to have the story because that's what they didn't get to have. They didn't get to go on the Europe trip. Together. And a, a, a feeling, an experience, a hope of everlasting life. I mean, yeah. not to get too religious, but I, one of the great things about this script, I just want to note, is that in the uh, playwright's note forward, she includes this letter from her brother that he sent her uh, upon the, I believe it was upon the pneumonia diagnosis, which signals what is going to be the end of his life. And the letter from the brother details in a incredible wit. I mean, the dude seems just an amazing person to talk to based on this letter. Um, It details what he would like done at his funeral in some hilarious, awesome, 
witty things. And it's yeah. close, I, she, she says it's real. So that's amazing that he has that kind of a wit. Um, but I just want to note that one of the things he mentions in the letter is that though most people, especially at the time of writing the play, would assume that a gay man's religion is negligible at best, means nothing, right? This is back then, although that stereotype, as shameful as it is, still exists. Um, he says, he he counters that and says, having a religious funeral is incredibly important to me. And if you think about the context of that person, then in terms of what her ability to dance with him at the end of the play, you certainly could find religious images, connotations, beliefs about everlasting life there. Yeah, definitely. The line from the letter that that he says, I I wish prayers in some recognizably traditional form to be said, prayers that give thanks to the creator for the gift of life and the hope of reunion. And I think that hope of reunion... Is is and and this this letter is like somewhat called to be like in the per, in the yeah. or it's not called for but it's welcomed to be in your bulletin. I, I for would that say thing. strongly Strong, suggested. Strongly suggested. I would suggested. say anybody that looks at Bolivogel in the eye and says you wanted me to do it in this touching <laughs> tribute to your brother from the masterwork genius Bolivogel, and right. I went nah. Right. <laughs> That would be yeah. tough. I would say, I, I would say it's something close to a necessity. Yeah, strong. Yeah, strongly necessity. <laughs> suggested necessity to be in the program for the play. Um, to give the context of the relationship. Um, and uh, and and that's in there. That's in there. His hope of a reunion, and they get that reunion. Um, in that 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 final dance moment at the end. In that sense, then, what bookends this one scene of painful reality for Anna, where we're back in the real world with this harsh lighting, this hospital, this loss of her brother, what are the bookends of that? Well, it's a what-could-have-been trip, this sort of wacky, wild, non-realistic version of what-could-have-been, but it's a what-could-have-been and what-could-be. Those are the bookends of her reality of pain in the moment. And that that is, I mean, that's a, that's a speaking into grief, right? What could have been and what could be are both parts of grief. Yeah, absolutely. And, and grief walking is part of this play, too. You have a whole internal scene that is, or, in, you know, in the middle of the play is what I'm saying, <laughs> internal scene. In the middle of the play, there's a scene about uh, the process of grief and walking through the process of grief and the possible addition of, of lust as into the categories of, of processing of grief. So that, that theme carrying through all the way to the end where you get some sort of conclusion to it um, is, is, is just a beautiful way to end the play. Well, as we wrap up our conversation here, I just want to read this quote from Paula Vogel. Um, she actually wasn't talking about this play, but it's so specifically clear how it references this play that I just want to read to you. This is an interview that she, Paula Vogel did with Mary Louise Parker, and they were talking, of course, about How I Learned to Drive. Um, but in that interview about How I Learned to Drive, her most famous play by far, she says this, In every play, there are a couple of places where I send a message to my late brother Carl. Just a little something in the atmosphere of every play to try and change the homophobia in our world. 
That is our conversation around the Baltimore Waltz. Uh, we are coming to the end of our time here, but it does not mean that the conversation itself has to end. We would love to keep talking about this play with all of you. Um, we, we also did How I Learned to Drive, so we'd just love to talk about Paula Vogel with all of you um, out there in Seriously, podcast Seriously, folks, one of the <laughs> best three playwrights ever. Yeah. I mean, I, I believe that in my heart. Mm-hmm. So if you want to have people talk to you uh, about these plays, we'd love to be those people. We're on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking about the Baltimore Waltz with you. If you'd like to recommend this podcast, that'd be a huge help to us. We love to see our listenership grow because it means more and more conversations are being had. And we're, we're seeing that growth even still. So thank you all for that. We don't do a ton of advertising or anything. So what traction the play game or the podcast gains in the world is due to you telling people about it. So that's a huge benefit. Thank you for that. Um, you can send people, if you want to recommend them, to Spotify, to Apple Podcasts, to Google Play, to Podbean. We're in all those places. Uh, an easy, easy way to find us, if you need it to be easy, is just to like us on Facebook, uh, because then you'll get the updates on what play we're about to talk about in the next week. And then every Monday, there's just a click and play link to the episode that you can find on our Facebook page. So, until next week, whether you click through on that Facebook link or follow us on any of the sites, we'll see you there. Until then, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script, the podcast. We will see you.